We are here. You are listening to Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can listen to me and on this program, Meditations in Molotovs, every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. That's 11 a.m. on the West Coast and 1 1 p.m. in the Central, where I'm located here, broadcasting from Michigan City, Indiana, in the heart of of the Rust Belt. Looking forward to speak with another Rust Belt activist today, and I don't think he would mind me referring to him as that. So I'll have Thomas Frank on the program. Thomas Frank is an educator, as I would refer to him, an artist and an activist slash organizer who works primarily in the Great Lakes region and has done some amazing work. It's pretty interesting, actually. The way that we met each other was through the radio. So I picked up, which I very rarely do, and I'm very guilty of this, of not reading some of the local um, you know, newspapers. And I mean, I, who can blame me, right? I mean, most of these articles are wire stories. They no longer have a decent staff. And that's not because people are ignorant. You know, let's back up here. A lot of people say, oh, people don't read newspapers anymore because people are ignorant no people don't read newspapers anymore because most of what's written in newspapers is trash it's sensationalized entertainment bordering on national inquirer trash it's you know tabloid crap and the analysis is very shallow and there's not much critical thinking happening and there isn't you know many in-depth investigative articles about issues that actually impact people who live in the places and regions and localities in which they live so you can't blame people for not reading the newspaper nonetheless i won't make excuses for myself i simply don't keep up on enough local news as i should that being said one day i happen to pick up the local newspaper and i see a picture of a local environmental activist and a nice write-up about Thomas. And then I tune into a local podcast. Uh, I believe it is, or maybe it's a local radio station. I can't quite remember. But nonetheless, the journalist who wrote up the article about Thomas Frank was interviewing him for his radio program. Unfortunately, I couldn't call in live to speak with Thomas at the time. but I w- So I waited until he was off the phone and the interview was finished. And the host asked for people to call in. So I called in. And I said, hey, you know, here's here's where I'm coming from. This is amazing. I have never heard someone in the region articulate the kinds of things Thomas was articulating them in in such an in-depth, clear, and informed manner. And to tie a lot of this together, militarism, uh, neoliberalism in the capitalist economy, fossil fuels, industrial extraction, racism. And so forth. So this, to me, was really a great opportunity. And since then, I've been in contact with Thomas and have been working with Thomas on various projects. And we run into each other at various events and so forth. So it is a great pleasure to have him on the program today. So that will happen in about seven minutes. I'll be talking with Thomas, maybe a little longer. For now, I want to touch on a couple things. Number one, since I'm living in Indiana, I guess I should mention that tomorrow is the primary. Okay. So, 
for those who didn't vote early. In Indiana, we have an open primary, and it's proportional if someone doesn't get over 50%. So if Trump – and I don't know if that's that w- – see, what I'm confused about right now, and I'm sure a lot of people have been perpetually confused throughout this election cycle, so I don't feel too bad saying this. <laughs> and, I'm not, and it's not something that I've actually been interested in that much throughout my activist you know, life as I've told people in previous programs. I mean, I've never really worked on an electoral campaign outside of a couple of local elections. And in those elections, I actually had friends who were running, so I had no problem volunteering my time to work for that election. So I never really paid much attention to electoral politics in the U.S. wasn't my cup of tea until recently. And in previous programs, I've mentioned that the reason for that has been that I think it's a, it is a way to connect with people who otherwise wouldn't be out and politically engaged or interested or willing to show up and do events, you know. So where the hell was I going with this? Okay, so tomorrow, yeah, people show up 6 to 6 p.m. or 6 to 9 p.m. I think it's 6 to 6. So 6 in the morning, local time till 6 p.m., as long as you're in line by that time. And you can vote, and it's an open primary. If you're not inclined to vote for Sanders or Clinton, I hope that you vote for Trump because I am deathly afraid of people like Ted Cruz. I actually think Trump's policies are leaps and bounds ahead of where Ted Cruz's policies are. Uh, And we could go through that list, whether it be trade, whether it be uh, foreign policy issues, uh, whether it be even some social issues and, and so forth. There's many different places where I think Donald Trump is actually more progressive than Ted Cruz and some would even argue that you know Donald Trump has policies that are to the left of Hillary Clinton um, you know I and here's another thing as an aside because I want to read a short excerpt from an article by Peter Linbaugh Linebaugh I'm sorry that was published on Znet I just got the email today and then I'll tell you a little bit about what the break free from fossil fuels event is all about or what the May 4th through 15th actions will be all about and those will be happening throughout the world and this is part of why we're talking with Thomas Frank today there will be a massive event in Whiting Indiana on May 15th I believe we'll be able to clear that up when I talk with Thomas and there will be several events leading up to that so this is a sort of a prime opportunity you know, for local activists and people who are interested or people who are just now realizing that, you know, we could very well have 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50, the most optimistic of estimates, 100 years to radically change course. Or that's the end of the species. So, you know. I think these are the kinds of topics, and we need to talk about them in that way. We need to be upfront and honest with people. I think people are smart enough to understand what's happening. And in fact, I think people are becoming increasingly aware and increasingly capable of hearing that kind of thing. I think this election is a good example of that. The kinds of policies that certain people have gravitated towards. I mean, for Donald Trump, we'll you know, use him as an example and talk, speaking of the Iraq war. I mean, for him to be able to get on stage during the Republican debate and say the sorts of things he was able to say about George Bush, Dick Cheney, and the absolute disaster, catastrophe, horror show 
that has become Iraq, Afghanistan, and the broader Middle East and North Africa, largely and primarily as a result of the U.S. empire and the insane foreign policies of both the Democrats and the Republicans. Something like that, I think, tell, should tell people a lot about where people are at in this country right now. People are pissed, and they are ready for something drastically new and drastically different. So, you know, that's up to us whether or not we can mobilize these folks. And what are we going to mobilize them to do? And what are they going to mobilize themselves to do? Because if we don't organize these folks, I mean, I'm telling you right now, like we talked about last week, Trump and Sanders are just the beginning. They are the tip of the iceberg. In the coming years and decades, people like Trump on the right wing will seem tame and people like Sanders on the left wing will seem tame. As the capitalist, the global capitalist economy continues to fail, as the environment continues to be ravaged, as militarism continues to expand and grow, as we continue to be surveillanced and spied on, people will grow increasingly not only weary of these things, but they will, as people have seen, particularly in the United States, and, of course, around other parts of the world as well, increasingly angry. And there will be a response to that anger, that people will respond to those emotions. How will they respond? Who is going to organize people? Will it be progressive left-wing elements, elements against capitalism, against militarism, for racial justice, for equality, for civil liberties and freedoms? Or will it be a right-wing reactionary force? That's a question that we'll have to answer in the future, and that question will be answered by the people who are organizing. And it'll be answered in due time. Now, I'm actually getting some info here. So let me let me check something here. I apologize for this, but hey, that's what happens when you're dealing with technology. This is also a scary thing, right? So if technology is running our lives now, so this kind of scares me when like little easy, you know, things you know happen like your phone goes down or the audio on Skype gets screwy or you know, there's a dropped phone call or something. What really worries me are the people who want to put machines in charge of everything. So it's like, well, if something goes down, then what? Nobody knows what to do. <laughs> you know, this is this is kind of frightening to me. Okay, so everything is fine. I'm sorry about that. Sorry about that, folks. But hey, our listeners are easy going, right? The people who listen to this program, they're they're you know, they're they're able to adapt. It's not a big deal. If you're, if you're looking for a, a, a prepackaged canned program with someone who sounds like a uh, host on NPR, then you're in the wrong place. You know? So let me – swinging back because I could, we could, I could just go off and start rambling on and on. Actually, I pro- could probably do a two- or three-hour 
pro- program. Whether that would be entertaining for people or not is another question. Nonetheless, I think I have that many people to talk to, plenty of people that I want to interview, plenty of people I've interviewed in the past. I haven't really, you know, I, I was telling people prior to doing the show that, you know, we're going to have all kinds of guests on. And we'll have nationally and internationally recognized guests. We'll have artists and anthropologists and philosophers and all that kind of stuff, stuff that we did in the previous program that I had on Veterans Unplugged. But something that I wasn't able to do five years ago, six years ago, that I'm able to do now is to genuinely plug into and to connect because really the region wasn't that active as much as I think it's active now wasn't able to plug into and to connect and to highlight and the work of the many excellent organizers and activists who are in the region. One of those organizers and activists we had on the program a couple weeks ago, Samuel Love from Gary. And today we have on the program Thomas Frank. So I'll get back to, I'll, you know, maybe towards the end of the program, I'll leave five minutes. I'll read a little bit from this May Day article because I do think it's important. And what breaks my heart is, you know, to be halfway around the world in Australia and to have a massive May Day event only to come home to Chicago, the very birthplace of the modern May Day. And to have luck, you know, if you're lucky, a couple hundred people in the street. So anyway, on a more positive note, let's get Thomas under the call. Is Thomas there? I know he just called in. Let's get Thomas on. We'll talk to Thomas about... His work in the region, we'll talk to him about the Breaking Free from Fossil Fuels event and whatever else he wants to talk about. So, Thomas, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you, Vince. This is great. Awesome. Good to speak with you, man. So, how about this? How about if you want to, maybe for five minutes or so, or as long as you want, kind of tell people who you are, where you come from. Let's kind of humanize this voice here. Okay. Um, My name is Thomas Frank. I'm from the Chicagoland area. I grew up on the north side. And um, I kind of married into the southeast side of Chicago and uh, northwest Indiana in East Chicago. My wife is from this this community, and we about 20 years ago we bought her grandparents' house in East Chicago, and so that that's really what brought me to the region. And uh, it's been working in this region and addressing some of the issues uh, that I became more and more actively involved as an activist or an artist activist. I had been the director of the Indiana Shipping Canal uh, after um, studying urban planning. Um, the thing that I discovered uh, as the director of the Indiana Shipping Canal that was the enormous amount of contamination and environmental um, blight uh, there was here in northwest Indiana due to 120-some years of industrialization. We live in the Calumet Industrial Corridors on the southern shores of Lake Michigan, which is really one of the oldest and largest industrial corridors in the world, and it's been heavily impacted uh, with steel and oil and other chemical companies. Um, the Indiana Shipping Canal, uh, up until just recently, was considered the most polluted body water in America. Uh, the challenges there was that we we signed the Clean Water Act over 40 years ago, and we still hadn't even begun to clean this up. And that had a lot to do with the uh, globalization and how capital just kind of escaped the region. And it just left uh, um, a lot of their contaminants behind, un- unaddressed, uh, and just left for communities to deal with themselves. Uh, and over time, 
uh, a lot of the uh, ethnic whites and other white, uh, many of the whites were able to move out of these regions. But a lot of the people of color, especially African-American community, kind of got trapped here. And so they ended up having to shoulder a lot of the burdens of the last hundred years of industrialization with fallow brownfields and and contaminated waters and some of the worst air quality in the country. Uh, and so that's what we where we where we are today. Um, East Chicago has today uh, the largest tar sands refinery in the entire country. Um, I consider it the largest uh, carbon bomb uh, in the nation, uh, with the largest carbon footprint. Uh, we also have the largest. Uh, uh, um, oh shoot! Blast furnace in the entire hemisphere, with Arsler Middle here. Um, one of the things about Arsler Middle is they consolidated a lot of the steel properties on the southern shores of Lake Michigan. So what we've left been left with over these last forty years, uh, since the EPA was created and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, was a delay uh, in addressing the environmentals. Uh, most of our our land, about 40 to 50 percent of it, is uh, unutilized industrial lands, considered brownfields, um, and so that's what I've been kind of addressing for the last uh, decade and a half here. And can you talk to people a little bit about the economic angle here? Because often, I mean, as you know, that there's this constant argument. I talked to union officials about this, spoken with all kinds of people about this. You know, this jobs versus the environment argument. I mean, what I see in northwest Indiana is not only a natural environment that has been ravaged by industry, but also a people that have been ravaged in some ways by industry, where this argument is often made, oh, well, you know, these industries come and they provide all these great jobs and all this great wealth. And, you know, let me tell you from a personal angle, good friend of the family, someone I consider basically an uncle, it just died two days ago from meso from exposure to mesothelioma, also exposure to Agent Orange. So tying all this together, Thomas, I'm thinking about, you know, a, a disproportionate representation of veterans in this Rust Belt region um, who were sent to these illegal, immoral, insane wars. Then they come home to work for industries that further poison them, cut their benefits, send their jobs overseas and these very same companies are also not only benefiting from those wars, exploding those workers, but then dumping their trash and destroying the, in, the natural environment. I mean, is that the wrong way to look at this? I mean, are there people that you're speaking with who um, are pushing back against this? Right. I, I think what you're, you're saying is exactly right. And, but that's a challenge for a lot of the people in the region because the way the argument has been framed, it's been framed as jobs versus the environment. And uh, to tell you the truth, um, this region is, is, is heavily covered. My neighbors, my friends, my family, they're all union members here. Uh, they've been working in, in these industries uh, for years and years and years. Or, and, but we don't have an environment. We don't have a Sierra Club member here. You know, that's something that doesn't exist here. Um, let me give you an example. In the 1970s, in terms of the, uh, you know, environment versus the jobs equation that, that the industry feeds us and it feeds the workforce. But in the 1970s, East Chicago employed over 70,000 uh, workers in steel and steel-related jobs. Today, there's less than 2,500, and steel production has continued to go up. And up. In fact, the southern shores of Lake Michigan, contrary to what they've been hearing uh, about trade negotiations and problems, 
that there are, and there are some problems there. Um, this is one of the still one of the most uh, steel productive regions in the entire world. So what they've been able to do is they've been able to push out this argument about the environment for the to feed people this op- thought of that they need more jobs while they've been sucking jobs out of the region and to other regions in the world. And that's been, that's been the challenge. I mean, we've lost close to 70,000 jobs in the last 40 years. And in the last two years, our region has lost, oh, close to 3,000 jobs in steel and steel-related job, our industries just here. Um, they've been continuing to become smaller and stronger uh, in consolidating their, uh, their assets. And at the same time, they keep pushing out this argument about the environment. So environmentalists have been kind of viewed by the workforce as the enemy, um, as opposed to uh, their, you know, the owners of the industries uh, that, are, that have been pushing out the argument. So one of the things that we see here is to get jobs, a good example is BP invested nearly $5 billion, about $4.5 billion for a brand-new tar sands refinery in East Chicago. And it's known as the Whiting Refinery. And so they moved that refinery out of Whiting and into East Chicago and across the street from one of our historic districts, the, the Marktown Historic District, which is an ancient, or not, it's not quite an ancient, but an old um, steel uh, workers' village. Uh, it's on the National Register of, uh, of Historic Places. But in doing that, this nearly $5 billion investment only created less than 50 jobs, but the way in which they sold it to the region was the creation of 80 to, or 70 to 80 jobs. Um, that, even though it's such a small number, people here are clued into jobs, any job, any job. Um, and the fact is steel and oil are still very good paying jobs, but there are just so few of them. And so what we suffer here in Northwest Indiana, especially in the urban uh, industrial areas like East Chicago and Gary, is we, we suffer from high unemployment. You know, East Chicago has about a 28% unemployment. Gary, from what I'm understanding, is close to 45 or something. Very, uh, uh, you know, unbelievable uh, levels of unemployment. Now, these people were all union members at one point. Their families were union members. They were working in the steel mills. They were working in, in the industries around here. Uh, but those industries have escaped. At least the, uh, the capital has been able to escape and leave back behind contaminated land, which really is a challenge for uh, poor low or low-income communities of color to create reinvestment because of the in- contamination. There's all this debt, and then literally it's tens of billions of dollars of of damage that has been done to the southern shores of Lake Michigan. So it's, 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 I think uh, for many union workers, they are beginning to understand that that equation doesn't work anymore. It certainly never never actually worked, uh, the, the play against the unions or the jobs against the environment. Can you talk a little bit more about the racial dynamic at play in this region, Thomas? I mean, I've had activists and friends from all over the world, from France, from the, from Asia, from Australia, come here, and they are completely blown away by the level of not only the poverty and unemployment and so forth that you mentioned, 
But they're completely blown away by the segregation in this region, going from a virtually all-white town of Laporte to a sort of mixed racial town but disproportionately black town in Michigan City to a town that's almost completely white in Chesterton and Valpo um, to, say, more racially segregated ta- or um, more, more racially diverse towns all the way to a city like Gary that's 90% African American. I mean – this is an extremely segregated region. There's been studies done in the last couple of years that suggest that Chicago is the most segregated major metropolitan area in the entire United States. And if you look at the cities that they list, a lot of those cities are often in the Rust Belt. So not to, you know, I'm, I'm asking you more specifically about the region, but just for the listeners, you know, check out that data because what you'll see is a lot of cities in the north and you'll see a lot of cities scattered throughout the Rust Belt that are often the most segregated cities in the entire country. Right, and that's that's exactly right. In uh, East Chicago and Gary are mostly communities of color. East Chicago, unlike Gary, Gary in the southeast side of Chicago, um, we're, we're also mixed uh, ethnic and racial communities, as was East Chicago. I believe, and I may be wrong about this, but I believe there was a lot of conflict in those two communities as opposed to East Chicago. I do believe that in East Chicago there was kind of a unique small village atmosphere where they really got together uh, and got along fairly well. Um, granted, there was always uh, strife. And what we saw in the, in the 40s, 30s, and 40s was industry uh, starting to create friction between the races and between the ethnicities. Uh, by and what they would do is they would run their infrastructure through these neighborhoods and divide these neighborhoods up with their industrial infrastructure. So we've seen that pattern from a long time ago. And if you come down here now, you're going to see neighborhoods and uh, that have been just decimated because they're isolated and and uh, encroached upon by industry from all sides, one neighborhood after another. And Gary, what we saw with Gary was a where people power started to work in the 60s and with the African-American community. And they were able to elect an African-American mayor uh, in a major American city. What that triggered uh, was a lot of white flight and a lot of disinvestment in anything but the heavy industry. Um, our region has a, a local billionaire uh, that really um, – made his career off of white flight and creating suburban edge communities, uh, uh, mostly white, and bringing uh, public infrastructure down there to support his investment. Uh, those are some of the struggles that we face uh, in northwest Indiana, and I believe it's probably repeated uh, across the Rust Belt. Um, what I see is the heavy industry uh, in East Chicago and Gary is being – you know, the negative externalities of that are being absorbed by these communities of color, while the benefits are being extracted to the white suburban edge. And not only do we see that in the business and in finances um, and in development, but we also see it in the environmental community. They tend to want to gravitate towards low-hanging fruit, and so they gravitate to their, their projects to white communities and doing conservation work and watershed work. But where the real damage is and where the real damage has been for the last 100 years is in these communities of color. And there's just not been that reinvestment here. And there hasn't been that much of attention uh, by the environmental community in these communities. 
So I want to talk about specifically from your perspective what's happening from, with activists, what people could do better, and, and some of those thoughts sort of leading or taking, you know, going from where you were just saying here. But I'm also interested because I don't want to insult your intelligence, and I know that you probably have some big ideas and, and sort of thoughts on this as well. But wh- I mean, where do you see this? going in the future like where do you see the future of this industry i mean people often ask me do you think the steel jobs will remain here are there always going to be at least some steel jobs here what do you think the you know what's the 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 future look like for a region like northwest indiana i'm sure this is something that you've reflected on yeah um well in terms of the activist community there there have been different waves. There was an early uh, environmental movement, environmental justice movement in the late 80s and early 90s that really that took root at that time. And in one way, they, they hit a wall. Uh, there was still a regional think that really felt that they can recover these heavy, dirty industries and that the jobs would come back. And so they really were not made, able to make many strides. And in fact, we don't have an environmental organization in this region any longer. Not, the closest one is two counties away, and that's Save the Dunes. And they usually extract you know, the benefits from the industry by getting funded by the industry to do uh, restoration in the dunes. But in terms of the um, – and what I'm seeing in terms of the activist community is we're seeing a, a renewal of activism. We've been kind of beaten down. We have this paternal relationship with industry. We think they're going to solve our problems. Uh, we've always believed that smoke meant jobs. Um, those were the kinds of things that that uh, that fed the mythology uh, that people lived under here. What we're going to begin to see here, and I do believe steel is going to continue to to uh, stay in this region, and we're going to perhaps get stronger. We're going to probably get smaller. Um, but what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to transition to a cleaner, meaner. Uh, industry. Uh, right now, unfortunately, our industries in this region have made some uh, energy mistakes, uh, as I can say. We have NICOR down in Louisiana that, that uh, invested in uh, cleaner natural gas. Uh, granted, it's fracking, and that's another issue we're going to have to get into. But they, they invested in a cleaner uh, energy source more than a decade ago. So they have they have the jump on Northwest Indiana. We can think about uh, China and how our industries, you know, our corporations invested in foreign uh, uh, mills all across the world um, and, you know, jump-started their industries in those countries and have abandoned this region and upgrading the facilities. But I think East Chicago and Gary, we really do suffer from the fact that they've missed the boat on a lot of new technology. Uh, we do know that there are lots of greater opportunities to do almost zero emissions uh, in steel. Uh, we see that in uh, Brazil and in other regions of the world that where these you know, companies like ArcelorMittal are investing in, but we aren't seeing that here yet. Um, we may be seeing an opportunity where to continue this, our kind of industrial legacy or our steel legacy we may actually start to see opportunities where um, the workers buy out uh, a facility and create a collective uh, and start to supply steel for the uh, renewal of our infrastructure in our region uh, and in Chicago. Uh, right now with the, the uh, you know, international or global markets, it's tough 
to compete. But maybe if we think in terms of regions and as where we're moving around, uh, where our economy is beginning to move towards, that actually might be a, a viable solution. So I don't see steel going away. Um, and I do see a positive future if we are able to move towards, you know, a democratizing of the enterprise idea where the industry is owned by uh, the workers and the people, you know, the communities, you know, uh, the workers that live in these communities. Chances are if they live in these communities, they won't allow the pollution uh, uh, to, to incur as much as they do now. Right. Right. And then, and you mentioned fracking. I mean, I think most of the people who are going to be listening to this program understand how devastating uh, the industry has been to the environment. But I, I'm not sure if people quite understand just how devastating the industry has been to the workers who were hired in this industry. I mean, just three or four years ago, and you know as well as I do, Thomas, fracking was all the rage. It was going to bring economic development. It was going to bring this economic boom. And now, four years later, I heard a report on NPR that close to 85% of the regular sort of rank-and-file blue-collar workers who were employed by fracking industry no less than four years ago are now working in a different industry or not working at all. Right. In, in fact, I considered, you know, about 10 years ago, um, fracking was just, was just rising up, and so was the tar sands. And what we were seeing with those two energy sources is a recommitment to an already obsolete energy source, a fossil fuel. And what we saw was more of market ma- uh, manipulation to allow or to shift our reliance on these energy sources when we were already prepped to move into renewables. Uh, fracking and tar sands are, have been some of the most devastating um, developments that we have, you know, the dirtiest, most damaging uh, um, projects on this planet are occurring in those two industries. Um, when it comes to the fracking fields, and we're beginning to see it in the tar sands up in uh, Alberta, is we saw the boom and bust in North, uh, in North Dakota in the Bakken oil fields. We saw this massive boom and these new, new villages and new towns being set up, these man villages, uh, and those kind of spread and, and took root for uh, a couple of years. And now with the Saudis entering the, the market with lighter, sweeter crude and, and in fact, much cleaner uh, uh, oil resource, uh, we're now seeing a, a bust in that industry. And I just read an article uh, in Fortune magazine last week that saw uh, just such a tremendous drop in new uh, postings, job postings in the oil industry that they predicted by the fourth quarter of 2016 there will be more job postings in solar than there will be in oil right. and that, that's fracking and uh, uh, tar sands right absolutely and well you know another thing I'm thinking of for people who might not know this you know these towns what Thomas referred to as just these basically man camps you know these these towns were rampant with uh, sexual assaults, rape, prostitution, uh, drug abuse, violence, gang crime, all kinds of things. I mean, and this is, I mean, I think this also, this is something that, and I'll just saying this as an aside, you don't even have to respond if you don't want, Thomas, but 
you know, for the listeners here, I mean, these are topics we're going to be getting into as the show progresses along. I mean, all of these things are connected, and I think we have to talk about to people about that in such a way. So, I mean, when we talk about military interventions, it's not a coincidence that we're also talking about military sexual assault. When we're talking about this very violent extractive industry, and then you have this like this these patriarchal institutions and structures and cultures interweaved within that industry and inherent within that industry, it's not surprising that you're also going to see rampant sexual assaults in a place where such an industry is thriving. I think that's something that we need to talk about. And also, you know, I remember two years ago at a conference in San Francisco, we were listening to indigenous women speak about the not only kidnappings, but the human trafficking on a massive scale uh, that's taking place and indigenous women are being disproportionately affected by this. And this is happening not only in places like North Dakota, but also in Alberta, Canada and other parts of North America. So it's just something I would also like to throw out there. Right, right. I would, I would concur. And so as you're saying, we need to keep these fossil fuels in the ground. One of the events or the major event that I would like to speak to you about, I just spoke with a good friend of mine, Samantha Castro, who heads the uh, office of Friends of the Earth in Melbourne, Australia. And she was so excited that there was an event taking place close to my home. And so here from May 14th, and I'm reading this from the website breakfree2016.org. That's breakfree2016.org from May 4th to the 15th. 2016, a global wave of mass actions will target the world's most dangerous fossil fuel projects in order to keep coal, oil, and gas in the ground and accelerate the just transition to 100% renewable energy. Can you talk to us about where this campaign comes from, Thomas, uh, how you became involved with the campaign, and what's coming up for people in the Chicagoland area? Right. Uh, so this campaign is being initiated by uh, 350.org. Um, it's an international campaign, as you, as you read, uh, to keep fossil fuels in the ground. The idea is, regardless whether it's na- uh, natural gas, oil, or car- uh, coal, is if you keep it in the ground, you, af- you impact all downstream uh, effects. Um, and a good example of just looking at the tar sands, we've had this long campaign against the tar sands for the last decade, uh, initially uh, uh, fighting uh, the pipelines uh, and the Keystone Pipeline. That was the major uh, campaign that we've seen in the last five, six years. And we had a basic win uh, with that. And the idea there was to argue against... Um, a new pipeline infrastructure that was going in from Canada to the Gulf to be able to export the crude to the, to the world market that really wasn't going to uh, be feeding our domestic needs. And what we are looking at were the impacts that this pipeline was having or could potentially have or has been having uh, with other pipelines along the way on our, on our Midwest region and the, uh, the aquifers. Uh, in the sensitive soils that are in in the uh, Midwest for farming. And what that pipeline, the Keystone, required was a single uh, authorization from the president uh, or the State Department. And so that's one reason why we went after that, because it needed, it was a major pipeline, and it needed, we had a, a single target. 
Um, we were successful after a long campaign to stop that. Now what we're looking to do is pivot from that to another series of pipelines. It's co- another company. Uh, instead of the Keystone, which was owned and operated and proposed by TransCanada, we're now focusing on Enbridge, which unfortunately, while we are focusing on the Keystone, Enbridge has been building out the world's largest network of tar sands uh, pipelines, and that goes through the Chicagoland area. There was also a, a pipeline that paralleled the Keystone, and that was called the Alberta Clipper. It, too, requires uh, the, the president's authorization to cross the border. Unfortunately, we've allowed, our, our government has allowed Enbridge to play a lot of uh, uh, funny games with the process. Uh, we're calling it kind of the switcheroo. What they're doing with the Keystone, or with the um, Alberta Clipper, forgive me, um, they're coming up to the border, they're expanding the pipeline up to the border, and then they're going to patch it in, cross it over to an old pipeline, uh, line three, that is so old that it predates the permitting process, and so that they can patch it into that, come over the border, and then repatch it into the Alberta Clipper to supply the Midwest. Um, and so the... the uh, oh, that sounds completely pop- safe. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, a, it's just a joke. It's Jesus. a joke with our legal system as well. Um, and this is a foreign company playing these games with us. Um, but the idea with this campaign is what we're looking to do is we're looking to kind of shut it off at the spigot so we can affect all the downstream communities that are affected, the expansions of the pipelines. The Alberta Clipper fed into the Chicago network, which is kind of the head of an octopus of pipelines going in every direction, and which also fed the uh, Line 6B, which spilled into the Kalamazoo River in 2010. And that was the largest tar sands, uh, uh, or actually largest um, uh, oil spill or inland oil spill in the country with a million gallons. Um, the problem with the tar sands is this is a high sulfur, high toxic product because they have to slurry it with a lot of other chemicals like benzene and stuff like that. And so we learned in the, in the Kalamazoo River the kind of damage that there can, can incur. A lot of people got sick. Many people have died. A lot of the first responders, not knowing that it was tar sands, uh, operated as if it was conventional crude and went in through booms into the water and the tar just kind of dropped to the bottom and the and the lighter more volatile uh compounds volatilized off and and affected their nervous systems and everything so we've seen enormous amount of damage within the community we saw Enbridge just buying out properties we didn't see you know unlike the golf where you saw uh, people going out there cleaning birds, saving animals. Nobody went into this area to save the animals, um, mainly because it's highly toxic. Uh, so that's one thing that we're, we're dealing with with the tar sands. Um, the tar sands also feed 25 refineries in the Midwest, BP being the largest tar sands refinery. So with this campaign, what we're looking at is the whole supply chain. Uh, the idea is we want to break free from fossil fuels, but we also want to keep it in the ground. If we can keep it in the ground, we save indigenous communities up in northern Alberta, uh, and we also save uh, uh, communities downstream, whether it's pipelines, whether it's due to uh, exploding rail cars, or whether it is to deal with uh, refineries like what we have here, 
or the pet coke that's a byproduct of the refining process that is blown around the southeast side of Chicago and in Detroit and in other uh, low-income communities. So um, that's what we're doing here with this, with this uh, uh, campaign. What will the actions look like? Uh, this is the event's going to be. Ta- can you give a little more details about the actual event that will be taking place in uh, Whiting? Right. All right. So the idea is going to be on May fifteenth at Whiting Lakefront uh, Park. It's just outside the, uh, Chicago on the southern shores of Lake Michigan, just a few miles outside of uh, southeast side of Chicago. Um, so the day will start with a. Uh, a water blessing from the indigenous community from this region, the Potawatomi and others. Um, there will be some music. Um, there's also a group of kayaktivists, about 50 to maybe 100 who met, depending on how many people show up. Um, they're looking to go into the water um, where BP spilled just uh, two years ago on March 28th, 2014, into Lake Michigan. Uh, so they're looking to go into Lake Michigan uh, and do uh, uh, kind of an action there as well. Uh, we're hoping to have a lot of press. We have some national speakers. We have uh, Naomi Davis and uh, Bryant Williams as the MC. Naomi Davis is uh, uh, the organizer of Blacks in Green. Uh, Bryant Williams is with the Southeast Environmental Task Force and the Rebuild Exchange. Uh, we also are looking to have um, uh, uh, Tara uh, Hollick of uh, Honor the Earth, or Hoska of Honor the Earth, uh, along with Olga Batista, Mariah Urita, which is, uh, 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 she's with Food and Water Watch, and the MICATS, the Michigan Coalition Against Tar Sands. They're the ones that campaigned against the Line 6B oil spill. Uh, Olga Batista is with the Band Petco Coalition on the southeast side of Chicago. Uh, we're also looking to have Maureen Taylor uh, from Detroit. Uh, Maureen was with the uh, the Michigan Welfare uh, Rights Organization that she founded uh, and has been an outspoken uh, person in Flint, Michigan. Um, and uh, so what we're looking to do is we're looking to raise up the voices Especially women of color and as leaders of this camp of this campaign and and uh, these efforts uh, and then from there um, about two o'clock we're looking to march uh, around the BP refinery and um, there is uh, a call for an action as well um, I'm not certain uh, what that's going to be at this point but we have uh, many people. Um, perhaps over a hundred to more uh, that are volunteered to do uh, nonviolent direct action, um, and that will be going on uh, at some point, or perhaps at some point in the day. Now, can we talk a little bit about you know what I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about as well, Thomas? Is how do we get not only that so activists and people who are already engaged? To, to, I think, hold the discussions and think about a kind of sort of unifying platform program uh, strategy. And, of course, there will be a diversity of tactics and so forth. But thinking about, say, further than just keeping fossil fuels in the ground, I know a lot of the people who will be in attendance for this event, and I'm sure many of the people who are participating around the world, 
are also saying, hey, we actually don't want renewable energy. Maybe it's a step or we're going to get renewable energy within this current economic system. But a lot of people, I think, are understanding that the global capitalist system, whatever you want to call it, is not working for most people. It's destroying the environment. It's not sustainable. And, of course, it's sort of an antiquated way of doing business with one another. And it's, increasing, it's increasingly oppressive and repressive for people around the globe. And we, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we simply cannot keep going on like this within the system. And I know a lot of people who are talking about renewable energy are also worried that, you know, yes, it would be nice to have less destructive forms of energy and to use those forms in a more equitable and sustainable fashion. But how are we going to do that within uh, you know, this capitalist system. And that's something that I, I think, you know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that as well. Well, I know that we have to kind of allow people to bridge their understanding from where they were in the era that we came from to the era that we're coming into or that we are already in to understand what we're in. Uh, we're no longer uh, an economy that's expanding uh, based on, you know, becoming a, a world empire, and expanding that empire. Uh, we're not, this is not the 60s, uh, where the unions had a big, strong voice in organizing. We, you know, the wall came down in, in 1989. Along with that was an opening uh, of the, the world to neoliberalism. And we're really at that stage where neoliberalism is basically taken over. And that's basically, if you want to just, you know, um, uh, think of what that might be that we can just call it capitalism has kind of uh, taken over the entire world um, from my point of view and from where I live I live in the Calumet industrial corridor where there we have hundreds of square miles of disinvestment and contamination and for the last 40 50 years we've seen this uh, occurring so from my point of view uh, capitalism hasn't worked for us it's failed. There are no solutions for us based on capitalism. They continue to invest elsewhere. Uh, for you know, they 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 continue to invest in pre-industrial uh, societies to hire them to do industrial projects uh, and continue to expand out, expand out, expand out. We're really at a point where we really can't continue to expand out, uh, and that's what capitalism really needs. It re needs a massive growth model that continues to grow exponentially, that grows faster and bigger. And we're really on a finite planet. Right now, the massive scale of what's happening in China and the kinds of development that's happening there is really what's accelerating a lot of the damage to the globe right now in terms of climate change. And also, uh, it's hit, we're hitting limits in terms of where capital can, can can continue to grow. So we're really you know, seeing the beginning of a post-capitalist society. Certainly there are some, um, there are some uses for capitalism in incentivizing some, some elements uh, uh, for development, but to have it as a ruling global principle that, that, uh, that uh, guards every type of relationship we have, I think we've, we've failed. I mean, we have lots of different kinds of ways in which we can relate and exchange. Uh, we don't have to have this one single principle. Um, but uh, I'll give you an example where, where it really seems ridiculous. 
in the last three years, China has has um, made or used fifty uh, percent more cement in the last three years than United States has used in the last hundred years to understand how quickly they are developing. And they're doing a lot what we did. They are expanding in infrastructure and in housing. They're expanding so fast that they're, they're just building the housing and building, you know, ghost towns that can't be filled uh, because they, for, to drive their economy, they need to continue to build. Uh, we, it, this is just absurd, and we know it's absurd. Uh, so we're seeing the end uh, of that era. And I think one way in which we can reorganize it is to, you know, more or less democratize what I'm saying, the enterprise, the business, and make those, move those into more collectives. Um, that may be a, a, an option and a, a, a solution. Um, so I, I definitely think capitalism has been a barrier, especially in the community where I live, where we saw the disinvestment. And where we're seeing fewer and fewer uh, promised jobs uh, and union, less and less union jobs. One of the struggles that we face in Indiana is we're in 80% coal, our energy, our electricity grid is based on. Um, they're facing a situation, the union members are facing a situation where they can't even imagine going to, alter, uh, to an alternative or a renewable resource. The only thing they can think about is moving from coal to natural gas. The problem they see with that is with the new technologies is they're seeing, you know, a, a coal fire plant which employed 180 people, uh, workers, now being shipped over to uh, natural gas and employing only 18 workers. Uh, so those are the kinds of struggles that they're seeing. So as we make these technical solutions, we are also uh, – creating, you know, enormous unemployment. And those are the struggles that we have to, to struggle with to create a just transition going forward. This is not about trying to make technical solutions and let's leave the people behind. And capitalism has been that model of leaving the people behind. And right. so we're looking to, to reorganize socially and politically so that doesn't happen. And what do you, what have what has your response been so far? I mean, what have you in in your thinking? Like you you know you've been doing this for a while. I think recently there's been more and more action on these issues, and I've I've seen more sympathetic ears, particularly uh, within the unions and within organized labor. So what has your reactions been? You know, what has your interactions been with folks? You know, in organized labor, people who are thinking about these issues, the workers, and so forth. Well, we're beginning to get on the, on the same t side. One of the things that I think they're beginning to understand is that uh, union workers are in my community. Now, we know about the Blue-Green Alliance, and that's a, a, an alliance between, you know, the Greens, the Big Greens, and labor. Um, but that's only two legs to a table. What it misses is a third leg, and that's community. And when community gets into the issue, what they are looking at are issues of environmental justice. They're looking at... Uh, labor justice. They want to share in the wealth. And so those are the struggles that we're looking to do. They can understand that, especially union members. I'm not certain the, the big greens understand that. Uh, again, I don't have a big green member that lives in my community, but I have a lot of union members or ex-union right. members because of the, the massive layoff. So I think we're, we're making strides. One of the things that we did is 
um, try to give you, you know, we, we suffered 30 years of, you know, uh, of unemployment and, 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 and um, when it came to steel here in Northwest Indiana, you know, reduction of the workforce. Uh, and it really, we saw a decoupling of the fortunes of the industry from the community. And so the community struggled and struggled with, you know, narratives and scenarios that, that reinvested in the industry, reinvested in the industry. And what we saw after 30 years was that wasn't helping. The, industry, the community just, just paid out billions of dollars, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and billions of dollars to try to jumpstart the industry, and, you know, to their benefit, to the community's benefit. Um, what we saw was the industry just swallow up that capital and just run away with it. And they continued to run away for 30 years. So what we tried to do about 10, 15, 20 years ago is we tried to recapture a lot of the fallow industrial lands and steel lands on the southern shores of Lake Michigan. That was considered some of the highest uh, underutilized properties that we had in Indiana. And so what we looked to do is we looked to jumpstart our economy by diversifying it and to bringing those lands into higher and better uses. That meant you know, remediating them, cleaning them up, and putting them into commercial or recreational uses uh, to bring them into more active uses other than industrial, uh, where, you're, where industry is allowed to basically do what they want uh, in terms of contaminating. And in that way, we look to diversify our economy. We unfortunately had been, you know, an economy for the last 100 years based off of one industry, and we, we, we rised with the industry and we fell with the industry. But in, since the 70s, the community no longer rose with the industry. Uh, what we faced with the tar sands refinery in BP was a massive investment and, uh, in industry and in old technology. I mean, we know how fast uh, a, an iPad will go obsolete and how we need to renew that every so many years. But this is an oil industry that we're not just still relying on this old technology, but now we're relying on dirtier, more, more difficult-to-reach uh, elements of the industry. So we're really, we really have to move uh, beyond it. But what, what we did to northwest Indiana is that we, we recast our entire economy on oil and a very dirty, nasty oil uh, product. And it just left us without bringing these lands back into higher and better uses and diversifying our economy. It left us with, with this old economy, industrial economy. And, it's, and unfortunately, I think that has a very near future sunset. I don't see us being allowed to refine tar sands, oh, beyond 2025, let alone 2020. It may be as soon as 2020. Uh, that we will not be allowed to refine it anymore because of the kinds of damage it does and how much it loads carbon into the atmosphere. Um, it literally is the largest carbon bomb there is in this country. So um, for us in Northwest Indiana, we still need to diversify our economy, and we just haven't done that. Well, Thomas, unfortunately, that's as much time as we have. But, hey, man, I appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners appreciated all of your knowledge, and we'll have you back on the program. And next week, I'll still have a few days before uh, the events, so I'll read off the events again and let people know the info and how they can plug in. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas.